In the digital reality, evolution over revolution prevails. The QA approaches and techniques that worked yesterday will fail you tomorrow. So free your mind. The automation cyborg has been sent back in time. TED speaker Jonathan Wright's mission is to help you save the future from bad software. Hey, and welcome to the QALead.com podcast. Today, I'm going to be joined by Kate Flanagan, and we're going to be talking about the evolving role of QA in Agile. It'd be great if you could just do a bit of uh, introduction for the guests so they can, uh, the audience can hear, uh, you know, a bit of your background and, and where you started, really. Sure. I'm Kate Falanga. I am the Associate Director of QA here at Code in Theory. I run uh, QA here in our New York office, which is our main office. I've been in QA, I don't know at this point, I don't know, 15 years, maybe a little bit less, not 100% sure. It all flies. Um, so in that time, I've been in a couple different organizations. Um, I kind of focus a lot on transformation and having people think a little bit differently about QA, both uh, on the individual level of, of the QA folks themselves, um, but also kind of within organizations um, because there's a lot of uh, things going on in the software development world, and we have to make sure that we're ready for it. Absolutely. And I, I guess, you know, um, starting your journey out, what, what kind of led you into the, the realms of, uh, of QA? Everyone, I think a lot of people have this story just because, uh, unfortunately, there's not too many people who go into QA intentionally. A lot of times people fall into that, although I do think it's changing a little bit now, um, now that software development is so prevalent in our society. Um, so I came in through uh, television production. That's actually what I went to school for. Um, so I had a, a couple of different careers. One of them was at a company that did um, kind of YouTube for enterprise before that was easy to do. So it was kind of hard at the time. So I was a video encoder at the time. So back in my television production days, kind of video on the Internet was new. Um, went into there to kind of um, make uh, video streaming on the Internet work really well. Um, and that company was a SaaS, and they wanted to start up a support team. And so I kind of got into that and ran their 24-7 support team for a while and kind of built that up from scratch. Through that process, we did a lot of UAT and worked with the QA team pretty closely. Um, and I don't particularly enjoy 24-7 uh, support. Um, and so I kind of went into QA as, a, hey, something that was really interesting to do. So um, I kind of took a step back. I was in management, but I kind of took a step back to just be a QA engineer. Um, it's kind of a step back to take a step forward to kind of move into a whole other discipline and kind of learn from there, from that job, and kind of got me another job, and kind of got me another job, and kind of worked from, worked from there. But that's kind of how I got into it. That sounds really exciting because I think, you know, we all take quality for granted. And I think video, video streaming, you know, the fact that, that everyone's Netflix and, and Amazon is just a way of life. And, you know, when you get those those errors that say things like uh, cannot connect or cannot log into the server, uh, I use a little app called uh, Downtime. Um, and you can literally tell your favorite services whether they've got they've got issues uh, on and they've gone down. So it's called Down Detector. You can get it on your mobile app. Um, and I just think we take it for granted. But at the same time, you associate quality with with those kind of products. You know, 
when you look at quality, you know, what, what what's your definition of quality? That's always a difficult one. Um, where I am now is an agency where we have lots of different types of projects. So the definition of quality varies from project to project. Um, and the actual stakeholders associated with that project vary. Um, if you think about, hey, if we're going to make something for, for children, then the standard of quality changes versus something that you're doing for adults. Or if it's a mobile, a native mobile app versus something that is an in-store experience. Um, what quality means varies, and that's why it's important to have that conversation before a project starts, or even if you're, there's, there's an ongoing project that you're going to stop every once in a while and have that conversation, um, because people don't really think about it that way, that, that what quality means changes depending on lots of different the stakeholders, the environment, lots of different factors. So it's actually an important conversation to have because it's so easy to get bogged down, especially software development world. Hey, I have Jira tickets in my plate or, or hey, how many different devices are supporting or are the client's mad or they're happy. It's really easy to think about those things and not take a step back and try to figure out really what does it mean to be successful here? What is what does good mean? What does quality mean here? Um, and it's important to have those discussions. Absolutely, and I think you know part of that quality and time to market versus price point. I think you know it's so difficult, and no one really has that conversation around you know do we want a product quicker to market that potentially isn't as high quality? You know how do we want our customer to perceive the the actual quality of the product? And, you know, I always like this this question around, you know, what kind of brand or product do you associate with really good quality? You don't have to kind of name them, but you can say something like, I don't know, a, a German manufa- car manufacturer or a, uh, you know, a particular product that you respect for quality. That's hard to say um, because as a QA person, we're always looking for those potential issues. So it's a little bit how we see the world. So I'm always going to be finding some sort of an issue with pretty much everything you see, even in those those types of brands. Um, if it's a project I'm working on, that's a different perspective. As a user, that's an entirely different perspective as well. If I'm working on a project, my my threshold is going to be different because I am aware of everything that's going on in the building of that product. And so I know why things are working the way that they are. But if I'm just, just a user, then I'm just frustrated by whatever it's actually happening. If I find a bug on a, on a website or I was, I was using, uh, trying to watch Star Trek on CBS Access yesterday and it was actually not a very good experience. Uh, but I haven't made that app, so I'm not sure why exactly why. But as an end user, it was frustrating. So that kind of goes back into that kind of mindset that you might have and like what does quality actually mean? Sometimes it might just be frustration for the end user is probably a, a big important uh, aspect to, to think about that may or, that may again get lost along the way if you don't have active conversations about it. I think that's a, a fantastic example, and uh, you know, I, I must admit, I, I'm looking forward to watching the new episode of, of Star Trek um, uh, Picard. Uh, my uh, my dad actually looks very similar to John Luke Picard, and he's got a photo with him because he's from Yorkshire, which is where my dad and I was born. So um, it's it's actually incredibly proud to see them to do a reboot really well. Um, but you know, it's, I find that you know the amount of moving parts, and we go for video streaming. And, you know, I think this it's a fascinating area. You know, you've Netflix. 
you know, most of, they don't have their own cloud. So a lot of the infrastructure they use, I think at one point they were saying Amazon or, or I think it was AWS in the US, it uses a, a huge percentage uh, when it's, you know, they're using their streaming for streaming services. Um, and I find that's really interesting because you don't blame the underlying infrastructure uh, platform for the fact that you're not able to stream that particular service. But we all know that they're underlining they're going to be run on some kind of cloud infrastructure. And actually, it's that access to the cloud infrastructure. Uh, you know, I did some work when I was in uh, in Silicon Valley with Apple. And, you know, Apple don't have their own cloud. So they use Microsoft and AWS infrastructure to host things like uh, the all the iTunes, the iTunes stores and the podcasts, what we're listening to now. So it's fascinating that when you th- you associate the quality of you know that product and maybe not having access to um, you know a particular service, you actually it's the brand what takes the damage and not the actual underlying technology that we know we are, we have to rely on on a day to day basis. And there's so many moving parts around that. You know, do you, do you when you finished a project, do you kind of at the end of it kind of feel like that was a, a really good, really solid product? Uh, and sometimes I guess you feel probably the other way of, you know, things that could have been done better. Uh, QA are never comfortable. Um, I, I try to tell folks, don't ask the QA person if they're happy with what's happening because they're not. They're not supposed to be comfortable. That's not who we are. That's okay. That's our job. Our job is to be uncomfortable. Our job is to to not assume everything's working well. To make that assumption is our assumption is always that there is a problem there. We just haven't either found it yet or necessarily, or we have been working on this project for a year. We know where all the bodies are buried, so we got, we know where all the flaws are. So we're never going to be necessarily um, comfortable with the quality of the project because that's just not who we are, and that's okay. That that constant uncomfortableness makes us good at what we do. Um, but we might be proud of the work that we did, that we worked together really well, that, you know, given the circumstances, we're in a good place. So there could, there's, still, there's still pride in your work and pride in the people that you've worked in and happy with the product as far as where it is. But there's always going to be a bit of a discomfort, and that's a good thing. Absolutely. And and I think that's what we strive for, don't we, as humans, is is we strive for perfection, but, you know, we have to make compromises along the way. So it'd be fascinating to kind of get an idea of, you know, what does a typical day look like for you? What, what How do you start it? You know, what when you finish at the end of the day, you know, what is uh, success? Well, one thing I'm like, I'm going to say agency a lot just because that is my world right now, but I've worked in other, other types of places as well, and I've gone back to agency life because of the variety. So there isn't too much of a typical day. There might be some days where I have a lot of meetings, and maybe I'm having a very big manager day where I'm doing a lot of manager things or I have to do reviews for someone or one-on-ones or whatever. Um, or I might be having a, a big project day where I'm being more hands-on with a particular project, and I might be actually be actively testing. Um, or I might be prepping another project and trying to help define uh, what we do on that project. If there's a performance, uh, we have to do performance testing or we have to do accessibility testing. What does that mean? What are the requirements? Let's set expectations to try to figure out what we need to do and what we need to deliver. That's part of my job, too. Um, and then there's just like resourcing. Who's going to do what? Um, so there's a lot of variety, and there's a lot of variety in the projects that we work on. Um, again, we talked about like in-store experiences. I just worked on an augmented reality project where I was the only tester on that project. 
Um, and then I was working on another project, which is a bit more of a, a kind of for a more financial company that is doing pretty more standard kind of website work, um, but at a very large scale. So it's there isn't too much of a typical day, and and that's what I like about it. And you also just get to learn a lot of different things. Um, just because we're involved in so many different industries, so many different types of technology, um, it goes really fast, and sometimes that's hard, especially from a QA person's point of view. Um, and again, we have to be a bit more flexible from the QA perspective than you might be in a more of a product company, um, because we are working with clients. And the biggest difference in an agency is our projects start, they have a middle, and they kind of end, and, and they, we kind of hand them off to people. Not all the time, but that's actually the majority of the time of what we do. Um, and that means our approach to QA and testing is a little bit different. And so we do have to be flexible on how we work and what we do, just because we, there's so many different variables in front of us at all times. But I like that. It sounds uh, incredibly intense. I, I, I like the, you know, I, I guess we've, we've both come from those, the, the kind of the a few decades ago when the, the we started with Waterfall and, you know, you do things like requirements engineering, you know, you'd have a product that you would deliver over a period of time. Uh, you know, they were dedicated, uh, you know, centers of excellence and capabilities that were incredibly mature and what you've just said it just petrifies me in the sense of you know the agileness of what you're able to do you know you're able to jump in get involved it doesn't matter if it's augmented reality it doesn't matter if it's uh you know an in-store app you will get in there you'll understand what it means you'll help set the foundations down so you know the understanding things like just putting the strategy and the and the good practice in place and how you define that that's you know that's a lot of work do you, do you find that leadership in your leadership activities from a management uh, point of view is different to say for instance how you deal with getting hands on and maybe get involved in some exploratory testing or rbt or you know uh, kind of context driven uh, what kind of uh, toolkits do you have at your mercy uh, I always have the idea about uh, tools don't drive what we do. They should support what we do. So we do have some, some stand, tool sets that we use just because just for money purposes, it's useful to have like services available to you. But for the most part, we're somewhat agnostic. Um, so we are a bit more context-driven slash agile with a little bit of waterfall if we have to occasionally. Again, this kind of speaks to how we work on each project might be different. There might be a project that is a lot more waterfall. There might be a project that's actually very agile, um, and you might be working on both of them. Um, we do try to make sure that, that for, especially for bigger projects, that people are dedicated to one project at a time, but occasionally you might be split across one or two. Um, myself, just because of who I am, I might be split across. I'm actually responsible for all the projects that come out of the New York office, um, even if I may not be actively working on them as a QA person. Um, so I kind of have to know a little bit about all of them, um, which is potentially a lot. So it's really just, again, kind of goes into flexibility, which is hard for a lot of QA folks when we are the people who want to have process. We want to know what's to do. We want to know where requirements are. Um, that's not a, that isn't always 100% true here. Um, but the good part of that is that you can be part of the conversation and you can help create the process where quality can occur. And I do think that's part of what QA's role can be in an agency or a product company or wherever you are, probably more so than, than a lot of organizations already do, realizing that QA folks 
don't necessarily have to follow this one track. If you give them room, you're going to have a lot more capability to uh, really kind of create different types of processes where it makes sense to do so. Um, I do get concerned when the default is, oh, you only, you only have two tools in your toolbox. Like, no, I want to have a million tools in my toolbox, and I want to pick the right one for the right circumstance. Um, and that's a bit of a struggle sometimes, but that makes it a lot easier to do what you need to do. Do you have a particular technique or tool that you enjoy, you know, uh, working with? Is, you know, something in your, your backpack, uh, something that you like to roll out? So, you know, using a, a bug tracking tool or, you know, some kind of uh, little plugin for, for your, your browser. Is there any kind of little tips or tools that you could recommend to listeners? <laughs> uh, everyone's a little bit different, and that's okay. Me personally, I do find myself when I'm testing using just Google Spreadsheets a lot um, just because it's easy to share with folks. Everyone can use the same thing, and I'm keeping track of my work. Uh, I'm not a big believer in those kind of step-by-step manual test cases. There's a time and a place for those in some, some circumstances, but too many organizations use test cases as a default. You can't possibly test unless you have step-by-step instructions in front of you. Um, and that is, just puts blinders on a tester and so that they're only going to do those things and they're not going to be looking outside of that. And you're going to miss stuff and it's boring and it kind of defeats the purpose of, of, an exp- of the, the skill of testing. Um, so I kind of prefer to test in the moment, but I'll keep track of what I'm doing. So there's going to be some element of documentation. For me personally, how I personally test, I document as I'm doing it, um, but don't necessarily have to. If I have to like think about what I'm testing ahead of time where there's a lot of different permutations, I might use a spreadsheet for that. Um, so there's lots of different tools available, but sometimes the simple things are the best. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I think helping, uh, you know, things like, exploratory testing you know i find the the tools that i'm using screen capture you know basic functionality where you know you're putting notes you might make in you know notes in in mind maps you know you're just taking down information that you think is going to be going to be useful uh, or actionable and i think that's that's really interesting because you know i think that going back to the days uh, you know when i started um, testing in the 90s I, I had a really uh, bad ex- first experience. I had this huge book of tests to run against a system, and I was there for six weeks, and I t- tested every single test. It was uh, for, a, for a large communications company, uh, and at the end of it, every single one of the tests had passed. I, I felt like an imposter syndrome, right? I, I literally went to my boss and said, I can't find anything. And he said, well, you won't do. N- nothing's um, failed on the, for the last 30 years. It's a, it's a PABX. It's a, you know, a, a, a telephone exchange, you know, they're, they're, they're built to last. And I just thought to myself, ouch, this, you know, that's taken some of the creativity away. And I think, you know, this, this whole, I think that's what, you know, the really good testers have got. If they've got that creativity, they've got that curiosity to go out and ex- boldly go where no, no one's tested before, I suppose. Absolutely. I think that's the, the, the most fun question is how do I test this? Um, and I love that. And I have that in front of my face every day. Um, it's how do I test this? And given these circumstances, what do I do? And that kind of goes into a little bit of flexibility, but you do need to be have a certain element of skill of exploratory testing in order to be able to answer those questions. And it's not easy to do. And um, it's not – everyone can test a little bit, but to be able to do it really well, having that really depth of skill 
um, that's really where we come into our own as QA. That is our value, and that is what we're bringing to our products, to our clients, to our companies. Um, and the problem is a lot of that skill can be very invisible um, and makes it very difficult for people to see because a lot of it's in our heads. Things like exploratory testing in itself is you can't really see what they're doing, especially since I'm kind of doing it as I'm, as I'm actually testing. Um, so it's important to talk about testing in a way in your company to make sure that skill set is, is seen. Yeah, and I think it's it's so hard, especially for the perception as well. I think, you know, one of the most, you know, the difficult questions that I always have to answer around, well, what is the difference uh, between QA and testing? Because sometimes organizations think that they're, they're essentially the same thing. You know, do you have a, a kind of a definition of how you'd, you'd kind of split QA and testing or, or, or do they do they uh, harmonize together? You know, what's your viewpoint of, of the difference, really? Um, I mean, I don't like the word QA'd. That kind of gives me hives sometimes just because quality assurance is not really a thing, but you hear that quite often. There is a difference between uh, quality assurance and testing. The testing is an activity, so you're not, you're not QAing something. You're testing a thing, potentially. Quality assurance is a tough one. I think there's a lot of uh, conversation about what we should call ourselves. Does QA even make sense? How could we as an individual actually assure quality because it's a group activity? And I believe that, and that's true. Um, just because your title is QA does not necessarily mean you're actually assuring quality. That has involved so many different factors, so many different people. And that's true. Um, but I don't, I've also always, when I didn't have the opportunity to kind of, what's our title should be, always kind of use QA, mostly for traditional purposes. And in agencies, our clients expect it, so they have an understanding about who we are and what we do. So it's kind of up to the actual QA teams themselves to kind of define what that means. But there's a bit of a difference in quality assurance and testing because quality, as we just discussed before, isn't something you can necessarily assure as an individual. But you can help create an environment in which quality can occur through different types of skill set that you have, testing being one of them. But also creating process, communication, collaboration, all that kind of brings into play as well because it can't be up to the individual. That's a, that actually a great example uh, that you've given there. And I think, you know, it's it's everyone kind of saying, well, we're all responsible for quality, but then not having that structure and guidance, which you, you're talking about there, about how to, you know, encourage quality within the organization. Uh, like, and I think that's, that's um, you know, the description as well for kind of, you know, what do we do? Are we testers? Are we QAs? Are we dev and tefs? Are we you know, uh, manual testers, are we UAT? You know, there's so many kind of uh, maybe mislabeled ones. Uh, and, I, you know, I, I recently started um, moving to kind of more persona-based uh, roles uh, just within the organization. And I, there was a, a good friend of mine, um, Dr. Emma Langdon, and she's a change magician. So she used to say that it was whatever you wanted to do when you was a child. In that case, she wanted to be a magician. And what she did for, for a living, I uh, uh, doing change. So I, I started calling myself a digital therapist. So, you know, I sit down, I listen to people. I kind of say, you know, you know, how did this happen? You know, a bit of data archaeology, try to work out, dig up where the bones are buried. You know, what, what did you want to be when you were a kid? Oh, I want to be lots of different things. I wanted to be a zookeeper for a while. Um, I think until I really realized what a zookeeper did. Um, which is, yeah, you're hanging out with animals, but there's actually quite a lot of uh, uh, physical labor involved, to put it nicely, um, of taking care of animals. 
Um, there's the, the not so nice part of that. And I'm not quite sure how I fell out of that world, but then kind of went into television production and then eventually software development and software QA. Um, so it's, it's, people change over time. I've had a few different careers and that might be this case for lots of different folks. One thing I like about QA specifically or testing or whatever you want to call it is because we have so much overlap into so many different disciplines, um, that we get, that you can kind of feel all of them. Um, and still be really strong in one particular area, be really strong at testing, but there's elements of project management. There's elements of client services and development. There's obviously quite a lot of engineering involved. Um, there's, there's user experience. There's graphic design. All of that comes into play, um, and you get to be a professional user. So, like, hey, if you love technology, like playing with stuff, I can do that all day. It's my job. So that's kind of what I like about it is because it isn't one thing. It's many things. Um, and, and it's kind of that that balancing act is is really fun. So I, I know we took we were going we were going to focus a little bit about on the the evolution of of the role of the QA in in mo- modern software development. So agile practices and this kind of bimodal, trimodal, fail fast, learn rapid, do quick experiments. Um, you know, we've got all sorts of new practices coming in from chaos engineering to site reliability engineering uh, and different disciplines. How do you see the role of QA evolving in the modern day? And, and you know, what is there any kind of tips you'd give to listeners of the direction they need to be thinking about uh, going forwards? Well, actually, I actually haven't seen as much involvement as I'd like to in the QA space. There's a lot in software development in general. You just listed many. Um, my concern is when those companies are doing those experiments that's mostly with development or products, and QA still has that expectation. Again, going back into – I harp on this a lot because it's important, but the expectation of those manual test cases being the only way to test or we have to automate everything um, – that seems to be the only two options in people's heads um, and not realizing there's gray area everywhere and to kind of do what makes sense given whatever circumstances you're in and making sure you have that flexibility and trust in the QA folks. It kind of comes down to trust a little bit. We need to see what you're doing. How many, we need to see progress, which, which kind of goes back into exploratory testing is in people's heads. You can't see it. So how do you know that they've done it and done it well? There's no KPIs attached to that. When you're kind of focused on that, all that pressure of quality in, in, in KPIs, metrics, is mostly on the QA folks and not necessarily on the rest of the product team. And so they don't get to evolve because they have this, this no, they're just not trusted, they aren't think thought of as skilled, or they're not thought of as part of this evolving process. Um, so it concerns me that so many companies are changing the software development practices, but not changing QA in any significant way. When you think about automation, that's pretty much developers doing the work as opposed to having that really strong user-focused kind of thought process. And really, not that I'm against automation, it's very useful. It kind of frees up uh, manual testers to really do that more exploratory testing area. So there's absolutely important place for automation. But uh, folks don't balance or think that through. It's kind of all or nothing um, when there needs to be a lot of gray and, and you need to empower the QA folks in your environment to be part of the team wholly. And that means maybe you don't need to write test cases here. Maybe you want to just sit with the developer and talk, talk them through that. 
or you want to just do exploratory testing really fast. In larger organizations, they want to have a lot of structure and everyone follows this process, but that process may or may not make sense given the circumstances that they're in, and folks aren't empowered to shift when they need to shift. And that's really what this is about. If you want to fail fast, you want to get fast feedback, take the change off your QA folks. Let them go. Let them test. Um, if they need to write test cases, let them write test cases. If they want to do exploratory testing, do that. Make, give them more tools in their toolbox to use. Empower them to make that choice, given the circumstances that they're in, and they're going to give you fast, business-focused feedback. I think that's great advice. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's you're very true as well uh, in the automation space. Yeah, a good friend of mine, uh, Dorothy Graham, uh, who's, who's seen as kind of the grandmother of, of auto test automation starting in, uh, back in the 60s uh, with Bell Labs in the US and then, uh, you know, putting some of the, you know, foundation work. And I remember she, she had this quote around that once you've created a, uh, an automation script, the likelihood of finding another bug or issue going through the same happy path. I actually heard a developer call it sad path the other day. And I was like, I was mortified. <laughs> but, you know, part of it was, you know, they go through the same route and, and this is, you know, they're not really adding any value. And I, I, I did literally sat down with this developer who said sad path. And he said, yeah, so we write all the tests. We do all the component integration. We do, we stub everything out. We use stubs and shims and we do literally end-to-end -end testing. So therefore we don't need any testers. And I was just horrified about you know, even even engaging into that conversation any further. But, you know, part of that was their adoption of, say, for instance, DevOps. Um, and I think that's really interesting because we talked about kind of agile, uh, you having to deal with projects that are water maybe mini waterfalls, some that are agile. And I guess some projects will be, you know, moving into this kind of DevOps landscape. You know, do you see there's a change in uh, our part in within the DevOps lifecycle as well? Well, sure. I think it's the same situation as far as we can um, work with developments so we know how to test things, um, help them write their scripts better or write them ourselves as, as QE engineers can actually write code as well um, to be part of that process. Um, I have found um, when developers write automation versus people who came up through manual testing approach automation very differently. Um, and the people who come up through manual testing are better at writing uh, test scripts because they're thinking through tests a lot differently. Um, there's a, a lot of folks talking about the difference between testing and checking. Um, I don't like to correct people if they get it wrong, but I think understanding that difference is important. And that's kind of checking is algorithmic. That's what automation is doing. Is this button five pixels? Yes or no? That's it. But a tester is going to go, what happens when I do this? And it's an open-ended question. I you can't automate that. And that's where you miss things. That is where your users are going to have a bad experience. You can pass all your automation checks, and your users are going to have a bad ex experience on your, on your application because no one's going in and checking and, and looking and touching things. Like on a mobile application, you can say, hey, the button click works, yes or no. But is that button feel right? Uh, on a, is it too big or too small on a screen? Does it work in different types of browsers as consistently? How does it feel? That's important, and it gets missed when you think you can automate everything. Yeah, no, that's a that's a great, great, great uh, example there. And I, I think you know that's even extending kind of our, our role into maybe even a bit of UX design. Uh, you know, part of understanding. 
Uh, and I guess they call, would class the kind of the lean UX view of the world of a, a rapid prototype that, yes, it's got a button, but, you know, is it in the right place? You know, does it allow you, it, should it logically part, be part of that flow? And there's a lot of tools that are coming down the line at the moment, which are kind of trying to optimize that UX or even digital experience and say, well, actually, at this point, you should be able to change your address. You don't have to go through all the menu and go back because it'll, people will drop off, you know, starting looking at the operation operational tools to say well why is everyone leaving uh, when it gets to the checkout page when they're using an android device on i on on the version 6 on this particular size uh, of the screen resolution on these devices on this network you know it gets down to that granular level where we need to be you know connected to operations to to actually you know think about quality for everyone not just the people who are lucky enough to own an iphone or you know have a standardized device or, or a browser you know they need to deal with lots of different form factors smart devices Alexa, you know, your Google Home. It's There's just so much variety of, of devices now. It's, it must be it's virtually impossible to, to get to provide quality across the entire board for that. No, you have to make smart choices because it, it's just too much otherwise. But going back to some of what you're talking about with UX and design, absolutely. I think uh, we partner. I mean, these are people, not necessarily tools that we partner with. And we'll have that discussion before development even starts. And this is what I talked about before about QA touching lots of different types of roles. And that's not just from a theoretical standpoint. It's like literally we can be in design reviews and give feedback um, I've been in a design review where another QA, te- QA tester went, "Hey, you know what? I know, but I know what you're ha- I know where you're going for here. But I've used a module like that, and it never works well on iPod, I- iPad in portrait mode. You may want to th- rethink that module. Development hasn't even started yet. It's just a design, but we're able to give feedback that quickly and solve a- and cause a bug to not even happen to it at all." Um, so having QA folks even more upstream, like the more it's the buzzword is shift left there, but that's true too. Um, we're professional users. Let's kind of be part of that feedback loop potentially sooner than you think. It frustrates me sometimes when I'm trying to do resourcing or, or talking with people and like, hey, you know, we're not ready for you guys yet. There's nothing to test. Are you sure? Because like there's probably something to have a conversation about. You don't need code to be written and to talk about quality. Absolutely, and and so that's that kind of design ops approach, right? And with the lean UX, is you get a prototype or even just a wireframe, and you've got some quick feedback. You can even think about starting how you take test it. You know, even from a, like a model based testing, which is kind of my background, is you know you can start thinking about uh, you know applying context on there. So if you've got domain expertise, you know you understand the you know the derivatives uh, industry or your use of the healthcare you can think about well what are the different codes that i might need to be putting into that what uh, what would i see uh, as a negative negative testing you know what is important to me uh, and under- to understand the j- different various different journeys before the actual application even exists uh, and i think that's a, a fascinating area and but kind of pulling back to the, the to the devops kind of approach you know i think you know this one of the things what I have as a, a bit of a pet peeve at the moment is around uh, ops dev. It's around getting operational people in those che- those those teams as well. You know, I, whenever I speak to Dan North, he always says to me, you know, the idea with 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 DevOps was blurring the lines. It was getting the operational 
staff involved from day one. It was, you know, uh, and vice versa, right? Uh, and using those operational APM tools, using the, you know, Google Analytics and use all those great tools that they've got on the right hand side to understand what the end state should be. And, and I think when you were talking about your agency stuff, you know, there is an operational state where you need to be able to hand it over to the customer to be able to run with it. But how soon are they actually involved? They may give you some requirements of what they would like, but, you know, are you there understanding what their environment would be looking like apart from, and, and maybe even putting some of those chaos engineering kind of questions in place around, well, what happens if the service goes down? What is that experience? What you get with CBS if something goes down? You know, it's all those kind of scenarios where I think, you know, collaboration across lots of different work streams, not just dev, is uh, and bringing the business in is is a, you know maybe something we keep, need to keep on evolving as far as when we going forwards. What, what, what's your kind of view on that? Uh, I mean, agency that's part of what we do. That's that's why they come to us is is not just to do the thing, but also to talk through the best way to do the thing, um, and how they can best incorporate that into their environment. Whether the, uh, we help choose tools, we help choose environments to put in, and we work really closely with their tech teams, their marketing teams, their business side. We're working with all those types of folks. Most of the time, the people who are hiring us are usually the marketing folks, but we still have to actually work really closely with their internal tech teams because yes, we have to handle this over um, and as far as client engagement that depends on the client some of them are very involved and on day-to-day basis we're on calls with us and we're, we're, we might, might even be a blended team or we're working with their developers and their QA um, or it can uh, could be a bit more waterfall we kind of you know six months later give them a thing we don't prefer that because fast feedback is helpful um, I do get concerned when we're so focused on, I think you had a lot of those different kind of buzzwords like Lean UX and DevOps and things like that. When you're focused on, oh, we're going to do it this way in this process, and this process says we have to do these six things and that's it, rather than doing really what makes sense and picking and choosing from those different types of environments to be like, hey, we're going to do things a little bit more UX over here and a little bit more agile-ish over here, but this we're going to do waterfall because it makes sense. And kind of it's good to understand those different kinds of techniques uh, and operational styles and software development strategies. Um, um, it's good to understand the positives and negatives associated with them, but I get concerned when too many companies are just trying to do it by the book when that book doesn't necessarily make sense for the circumstances at the time. Going back into the importance of kind of flexibility uh, and really making sure we have a lot of tools in that toolbox. I absolutely love that. You know, I love the idea of being able to switch between those uh, different techniques and, uh, and approaches because it isn't a one size fits all. And I think you know exactly what you're doing. You kind of you're te- you're you're like a boutique QA resource that kind of understands and tailors it like a, a fine suit for exactly what the client needs. Instead of saying, "Okay, we are going to follow this manifesto and we're going to do these particular types of software development lifecycle activities." And we're going to release it at this cadence of two weeks or something. You know, I think it's great to break down some of those um, kind of forced uh, viewpoints of what what needs to be done, uh, and really think about what should be done. And I think that you, this entire podcast, you've really kind of helped define that for for maybe some of those QA um, engineers or leaderships or anybody who's in the QA profession to to kind of understand some of the challenges that you have in we have in the industry. Um, do you have any kind of 
tips for for kind of listeners around maybe some resources that you like you know uh, that you like listening to or, or reading or books or courses or anything that might help them get started and really understand you know how to explore the, the QA landscape for me uh, I didn't really know a lot of that existed until I went to my first conference um, and that was very helpful and I had an idea like oh there's a whole world out here and people have ideas and people have some of these people have solved these problems that I thought that I had, then they know how to do it. Or they haven't solved it yet, and maybe I've solved their problem. Um, and, and that was very helpful to kind of just be part of the community. It can get difficult sometimes because whenever you have a community of people, there's always to be like, oh, my way is the better way. Um, but you can kind of ignore some of that and kind of get just like a whole lot of ideas. There's so many smart, awesome people out there. Um, I'm not going to necessarily name individuals because I'm going to forget someone and be sad about it. Um, but just going out there, there's there's Twitter, there's just looking for a different kinds of community, um, just looking for different QA folks. If you find a QA folk person on Twitter that is saying a lot of QA things, figure out who else they're following and follow those people too. Um, that's a good way of kind of doing it. Or just going to a conference, usually conferences, there's lots of different testing conferences. It almost doesn't matter which one, although some are better than others. But if you're going to get started, get started to whatever's easiest to go to. Um, and just start uh, talking with people, either in the individuals, like, uh, and, and talk through what you're doing. I think people would be surprised about um, how much is out there. And that's kind of what was very inspirational for me and how I was able to at one point in time I had to shift a whole company from 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 waterfall to a more agile way of working and I had no idea how to do that because I came from that old school world like oh no we have to write test cases I didn't even know that not writing test cases was a, was a possibility until I kind of went to a conference and talked to just so many diverse folks who people coming from different types of organizations doing different types of things people have different ideas that was just amazing to me. So, you know, if, you, if people are shy, some people are, that's okay. You can just, you know, you can listen. You don't necessarily have to talk. Um, or if you're really into talking, there's lots of, you can meet lots of really awesome people who kind of do the same thing you do across the world. It's an amazing kind of different community. And it's also very supportive a lot of the time. And you can learn so much and you can help teach because we're looking for new voices. Um, I think that's part of the problem too is that if we're too focused on, the company that you're working at at that particular moment, if that's your world, it's a very small world. And you're not going to realize that there's different ideas out there that can help you and your organization and the fact that maybe you're doing something that can help the testing world and we need your voice too. Fantastic advice. You know, I, I you know, giving back is really important and I, I and, you know, finding a mentor as well. You know, do you find that you reach out to people on Twitter, uh, you know, to talk to them, you know, to, you know, engage, uh, you know, and follow some of their content. So as far as, you know, stuff that they publish, you know, is, is that kind of how, how you became, you, you reached out and kind of found those answers or, you know, were they meetups or, you know, what, what advice would you give to, to, to people who are, you know, are completely new to this? Well, it was conference. I got sent to a conference for my job to start, uh, and then I got some names, followed those people um, that, who were just speaking at the conference, and then kind of went from there. Um, that's kind of a place to start. Um, but blog posts, um, I mean, just Google stuff. Start Googling stuff. Start Googling people. If you have a particular problem you're trying to solve, um, don't just read the blog post for the technical solution. Figure out who wrote it. 
figure out what they're thinking and figure out who they're following. Follow that particular path, especially if you find yourself reading the, the, the same types of folks over and over. They might be, there's different schools of thought in QA and testing. It's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, but realize that there's different schools of thoughts on QA and testing, and, and you might be in one particular school, but it's important to know there's other schools. There's kind of the factory school. There's agile is very different than context-driven. Um, different types of people think different ways, and it's not necessarily a bad thing to learn all those different schools because, again, you want to pick and choose. You want to have a lot of tools in your toolbox. Um, so also just be careful about making sure you're not in too much of an echo chamber. Um, and and, and like if you find some people, figure out, you know, who are they disagreeing with and read that. Um, kind of looking through and trying to figure out what makes the most sense for you um, and just kind of explore. I mean, explore the testing world as much as you explore a product. Yeah, no, I, 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 I must admit, I this week was um, I, I was doing a bit of work for the the, the British Computer Society uh, with a good friend, Stuart Reed. Now, he was part of the ISO new ISO twenty nine standard, uh, and you know that is a difficult read, right? <laughs> and you know you might you might be thinking, you know, oh yeah, well, you know, I love classification trees, or I use you know these type of techniques. Uh, but it's dry. It's really hard for people to understand. And, you know, they might go and do a course, the ISTQB course, or they might go and do uh, re try and read the ISO and not fall asleep, you know, and it's really difficult. And I think that advice where you're saying, you know, if you're reading a blog post and, you know, every, you know, all these different techniques ha have value, you know, really commit to it. Look at what else they've written, you know, add them to LinkedIn, even reach out to them and ask them, you know, who would you recommend? Because, you know, they are most of those people in the in the industry will get back to you and, and really help you out. So, you know, never fear kind of asking for, for help, I think, is a, is, is a great idea. And, and also follow uh, those kind of people who you, you know, uh, align with kind of some of the thoughts that you're going through because i guess over time and you mentioned you know you started off with you know test cases and where you are today it, you've probably if you know come up you've gone through so many different processes and approaches that you've got a wealth of knowledge that's behind that uh, whereas if you were going to start there again today you start your career over you'd probably choose lots of different decisions all the way through uh, and i think that's um really important because there is no wrong answer when it comes to qa i suppose so do you have any kind of final advice kind of uh, any key takeaways that you'd recommend for uh, for, for new listeners to um to kind of go off and challenge themselves with I think is if you're not happy with how QA is at your current company, take it upon yourself to help change that. And don't assume if you're not in a leadership position that you can't do that. Individuals absolutely can make a difference. I have another talk somewhere called Testing is Your Brand, Sell It. It's on, you can Google it, it's around somewhere, um, where I kind of talk through different ways of advocating for yourself. That's kind of very important. And if you're uh, in a leadership position, it makes it a little bit easier, but sometimes hard too. Um, and if you're in a leadership position already, look outside your current company and, and look out about what else is out there and bring in what makes sense. Um, it's that shifting from QA needs to shift from being told what to do to telling. And that can be a hard shift, but that's something I think we need to do. Well, now that is a fantastic session Kay and uh, you know I recommend to you to everyone who's been listening you know don't forget to su subscribe uh, and it was an absolute pleasure to have you on thank you so much